0: Hey everyone, thank you for joining me for episode 20 of the Mark Guy Show. We've made it to 20 episodes, uh, there's a decent gap in between the 19th and the 20th, but I have been pretty busy this week. Had some notes written up during my lunch break yesterday, this is a listener-generated topic of discussion, um, not necessarily a direct request for me to talk about this, but uh somebody i know personally asked me have have you ever written anything or dis- or discussed your problems or your issues with Keynesian economics and the policies of Paul Krugman you know why why do you disagree with them so much and i went back and looked at things i've written the topics on this podcast and it's come up quite a bit but i've never had it be a central part of an episode and i've never really i guess gotten to the core of my disagreements with Keynesian economics and why I think it's so dangerous and, and my problems with Paul Krugman. First, I want to say there's a lot of fantastic material out there about this, and I'm going to try to link to as much of it as possible in my suggested readings part of the show page. There's actually a podcast out there called Contra Krugman that every week they demolish Krugman's column. And they know Krugman backwards and forwards and they do a they do a fantastic job. And anybody that leans libertarian or that has looked at what's out there in terms of, of libertarian content knows Tom Woods and Robert Murphy. Tom Woods runs his own podcast, the Tom Woods Show. So these kind of things have come up a lot on his show. And then Bob Murphy, he's an economist. He he also has another podcast with um carlos lara where it's different they discuss kind of global economics and they also push a uh the infinite banking concept if anybody's ever heard of that out there but i'm not going to get into that because that's not part of this topic but uh those are the two co-hosts of the contra krugman podcast tom woods and bob murphy and they do a great job bob murphy knows krugman so well and he actually knows a ton about the nitty-gritty of Keynesian economics and the actual models that they use. He does a great job. He's a Keynesian's worst enemy. So I recommend you go out there look at that content. There's a lot of good stuff out there. But I'm just saying, from my personal perspective, these are my biggest issues with it. And if I ever get into a discussion with somebody about Krugman or about Keynesians or about this brand of economics – these are the issues that I tend to to harp on the most. Uh, So first I'll start with the issues, then I'll get into Krugman. But here are a few of my biggest critiques of Keynesianism, then I'll get into each of them into some more depth. But first, I think Keynesianism does a terrible job of explaining what causes the booms that then lead to the busts. Next... Despite the fact that most governments in the world now subscribe to Keynesian prescriptions for any economic downturns, the Keynesians always complain that not enough stimulus was provided. And this reminds me a lot of uh, communism and how people that lean far left socialist communists say that the issue with previous communist and socialist systems is that it wasn't applied correctly or there wasn't enough of it, you know. That's what the Keynesians always say that there there weren't enough there wasn't enough of the Keynesian prescription brought to the table, um, and that's a fundamental flaw. I'll, like like I said, I'll get deeper into that though when I go back through each of these critiques. Next, they act as if government spending comes out of thin air, basically, or that there are no deleterious effects. That government can spend money, basically, just as efficiently as the private sector. That's how their models are set up. Um, next focuses too much on consumption and aggregate demand rather than the saving and investment side. And then finally, they use their models as a basically a something to hide behind, and they think that because their models show something, that means that it's truth. But their models are fundamentally flawed, but they're so focused on their models that they can use these models to show something that's completely foreign to common sense, or you know, taking out a supply and demand logic, the basic principles of economics. They can take something that's completely contrary to those things and show it as being true because their models show it, and they take their models as self-evidently true. And so, I think they use mathematical rigor, is what they would, how they would call it. They use mathematical rigor in place of actually being able to describe what's going on to the layperson. And I think in most disciplines, there is something fundamentally wrong with your approach if it cannot be boiled down to something that can be explained to somebody else. I know that inherently doesn't make it false. It doesn't inherently make it misleading. But I think it's much more likely to be false and or misleading if it's not able to be boiled down and taken to the extreme in order to discuss with a layperson. So those are my five biggest critiques. Like I said, I'm going to get into each of those. So the first that I said was they don't explain what causes the booms that lead to the busts. So Keynes and his legions of followers, they seem to believe that booms and busts are just inevitable. And that by intervening and tinkering with interest rates, the money supply, and government spending can keep booms going inevitably. They think that the boom is just kind of a happenstance and that all you need to do is keep the boom going. And how you do that is by lowering interest rates below the natural rate, you know, by increasing the money supply, basically by stimulating aggregate demand. That's how you keep the boom going. So Keynesians are so focused on staving off the bust But they never look back and say what caused the boom in the first place. And what Austrians say, on the other hand, is they have an explanation for the booms. And they say that because the booms happen, there is an inevitable bust because of how the booms are caused. So this is how booms are caused according to the Austrian school of thought. So central bank intervention, by setting interest rates below their natural rate, sends distorted signals to entrepreneurs. So lower interest rates typically, absent a central bank, uh, absent manipulation of those rates, it would typically signify an increase in savings. And in this free market, entrepreneurs are now at a lower price of borrowing to make capital investments to then produce goods that will later be purchased when those savings, that increased pool of savings, is consumed. Because, I mean, that's really what savings... Are. that's what in savings and investment is it's delayed consumption so with this increased pool of capital due to saving the interest rate falls because there's now a higher supply of money to be lent out to be to be borrowed and this causes the price of that money to fall so that's the that's the interest rate so it now becomes cheaper for entrepreneurs to invest in new factories, new equipment, uh, whatever kind of capital investment they can make to produce goods that will then be uh, consumed at a later date. But this is what happens in a free market. So if the lower interest rates are just a result of central bank manipulation, rather than a true pricing signal, entrepreneurs are gonna make poor decisions. Malinvestments are going to happen. There's not that increased pool of savings that will later be consumed. So there won't be adequate consumer demand later to purchase the products of that booming capital investment. And yes, while that boom is going, while that central bank-induced boom is going, people feel good. There are more jobs because all these people are borrowing money, all these entrepreneurs are borrowing money, building factories, building equip- or producing equipment, whatever it may be, people feel good. Uh, you know, asset prices generally may be increasing during that period, you know, housing prices or stock prices. There's more money flowing around. Um, however, Aust- Austrians say the bust is inevitable because the boom was produced artificially, it's, it, it cannot last forever. No matter what tinkering you do, it cannot last forever, and the bust is going to come. And it's important to distinguish, like I said, when I say a boom, it's important to distinguish between a real boom, which you know caused by genuine economic growth, and an artificial boom caused by lowering interest rates below what their free market rate would be. So there are two different things. There can be a boom caused by you know genuine investment savings and and improving your capital stock being able to produce more goods there's a gen there are genuine booms out there, so it's not like Austrians believe that the economy will just drag forward you know stagnantly forever. There will be booms but but when you say boom and bust in this sense it's an artificial boom, and then the bust that inevitably follows that boom and this is really why the Paul Krugmans of the world never want to look back and discuss what were the causes of the Great Recession, or, I mean, even the even the Great Depression. They don't want to go to that level. They don't want to go back. They always want to say, we need to look forward and do what we can to fix this current issue. They do that because they're they're at a disadvantage intellectually in terms of the argument that you have. And that's what Krugman has said. He, he said that we just haven't spent enough. That's why we, that's why the recovery from the, the Great Recession 2008-2009 was so slow. And, you know, we didn't really feel like we were in a strong recovery. He said it was because the government wasn't spending enough. And the central bank wasn't printing enough money. That's what he said the issues were. But when you try to look back at, well, what caused the boom and bust in the first place he he's at a disadvantage in that argument because it lends itself perfectly to the austrians arguments because the central bank had kept rates low for a long time leading up to the great recession and it caused a bubble in housing prices primarily i mean in the stock market as well but the primary bubble was in the housing market but they'll just talk about the housing bubble like It was just a happenstance. Like, bubbles just come out of nowhere. You know, bubbles, oh yeah, yeah. it was a a housing market bubble and then it burst. That's what happened. But they don't talk about, well, what caused the housing bubble to happen? And the issue was the central bank, the Fed, kept interest rates too low for too long leading up to that bust. And a lot of the malinvestment went into the housing sector. And every boom isn't the same, you know, it's not the malinvestment doesn't always go to the same place, it's not always spread equally throughout the economy, typically it becomes concentrated in a few different areas. In that particular boom, it happened to be into housing prices. Leading up to the the crash of the early 2000s, a lot of it went into tech stocks, because the same thing was happening. Alan Greenspan was keeping rates too low for too long. And malinvestments happened in the technology sector. People got over-exuberant about that particular sector. And that's where this malinvestment flowed primarily. And that was the bubble that ended up bursting. But the Paul Krugmans and the Keynesians of the world, and I, and I want to also make clear that I'm not saying that they all believe exactly the same thing, because there are many variations of schools of thought within Keynesian economics so I'm using Krugman as a proxy for Keynesians I'm lumping them together I know that they don't all believe exactly the same thing uh, but they do a poor job of explaining the causes of these booms they seem to always try to come up with some sort of backward explanation for what caused the bust but they never look back at what caused the boom in the first place what caused the bubble in the first place So my second big critique is always saying that not enough stimulus was used. So every government now pretty much subscribes to to Keynesian policy. So if there's an economic downturn, they're going to use their central bank to cut interest rates. Um, They're going to pump stimulus into the economy. They're following these prescriptions for economic downturns. But every time that this doesn't work which it doesn't work, you know, in, in my opinion, but every time that it doesn't work to, it doesn't work the way that they say it should, it's because it wasn't done correctly or there wasn't enough stimulus applied. And one thing I caught, so I was just reading some of Krugman's old columns. I I read them pretty regularly. I have a Krugman critique coming up later, just from his last couple columns, uh, but one thing that Krugman claimed was back in, I believe, a 2012 article that he wrote, but he claimed that FDR tried to balance the budget too soon, and that was why the Great Depression was prolonged. And basically what he was doing in this analysis, he he was ignoring the fact that the downturn went had already gone at that point, because this was in 1937, uh, and this was... Keynes said this at the time uh and then krugman is basically saying that it's fact uh that the downturn had already gone far longer than it than it had it in any similar recession or downturn in american history so the favorite one for me to point to and tom woods has done a lot of good things on this i'll try to link he's a good talk on youtube about this that's up on youtube that uh, from the mises institute i believe is where he was giving this talk but talking about the crash of 1920 in 1921 and how basically the U.S. economy rebounded within 18 months or 18 to 24 months from a downturn that looked at the beginning worse than the Great Depression ended up being than the crash that caused the the Great Depression, the beginning of it, you know, the 1929 market crash that we all think of as being the beginning of the Great Depression. The downturns in that first crash, that early 1920s crash, was worse. Um, Bob Murphy's also done some good things on this. I, I believe he wrote about it in the, his politically incorrect guide to the Great Depression and the New Deal, which I will link to. Uh, it's a great book if you, if you want to read it. Um, I'll, I'll link to that on Amazon. But what happened was Herbert Hoover prescribed to... A lot of the New Deal ideology it was kind of a proto New Deal, what Hoover did to try to stave off that crash. And then FDR came into office and tried to do exactly the same thing on steroids, pretty much. And that was these Keynesian policies. It was pumping stimulus into the economy, it was cutting interest rates. That's what they tried to do. And you know, in 1937, FDR trying to balance the budget. We're already eight years in at that point. After the stock market crash. It had already gone far longer than any other downturn like this in history. And what's the missing element? It's because the U.S. government didn't do these kind of things prior to 1929. Prior to that crash. Our government just did not do that. In the crash of 1920, 1921... The money supply was sharply reduced. Government spending was reduced substantially, and we came out of that very quickly. But in the Great Depression, they did these Keynesian policies. Hoover and FDR did these policies. FDR's was much stronger, but this you know this meme of Herbert Hoover being this uh, you know free market guy that uh slash government spending and didn't do what was needed to stave off the great depression is just absolutely ridiculous. That's one of the biggest myths taught to American students today. And if there's one thing that I wish people would unlearn, it's it, it's that myth because they now believe that FDR is is who brought us out of the great depression. And it's not true. You know, Hoover did what FDR did, maybe not in quite as large of a scale, because FDR came in with so much fanfare. He came into office with so much popularity, really the American people at his back, that he was able to do whatever he wanted. So he was able to do what Hoover did on a far greater level. But Keynesians somehow have perpetrated this myth and have done a really good job of making probably you know, 90% of the American population who has heard anything about the Great Depression. I'm sure there's a substantial minority that doesn't know, like couldn't even tell you when it was, but that's pe- people's typical reflexive response. And I'm thinking of maybe, you know, a college graduate that hasn't studied economics but knows enough when the Great Depression was and, you know, when World War One and World War II was, kind of knows the general path of American history their reflexive response is going to be, oh, yeah, Herbert Hoover didn't do enough, and then FDR came in and saved the U.S. That's what happened. So they've done a great job of, of perpetrating that myth, but um, it's ridiculous. And Krugman himself is perpetrating this myth, too, by trying to say that the reason that the Great Depression happened or one of the causes of how long the Great Depression was prolonged was due to FDR trying to balance the budget too soon. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous on the face of it. Another big critique I have is they act as if government spending comes out of thin air. So when Keynesians discuss their reaction to a downturn, they continually proclaim we need more government spending to stimulate demand, create jobs, you know, whatever positive things they want to say will come out of this government spending. But... It, so if I could use one word to describe their prescription for a downturn, it's spend. And spend specifically from the government, you know, fill in the void that the private sector has now left, because obviously you're not going to be investing in a downturn the same way that you would have been in an upturn. So that's that's how they think that the gap is filled, is by government coming in and spending a whole lot of money. But this kind of they kind of come into this with an assumption or an, an inherent an inherent assumption that government is an entity with its own money to spend but it's not the case everything it spends it either has to take in as tax tax dollars from citizens or by printing it or by borrowing it from the tax revenues of future generations and all of these pose their own problems you know none are none are positive. They're all negative things, you know, either decreasing the value of your own currency, taxing your citizens even more while they're already struggling, or now taxing future generations in order to pay for borrowings, or printing money later to monetize those borrowings. Those are all negative in their own way, but government doesn't have its own money to spend. It it, it can't just spend money. It's not a philanthropist that can just now take money that it has in the bank and spend it on the US economy to fill some sort of void. No, there are deleterious effects that arise from any big government spending program. And economic downturns are the exact worst time to extract more money from the citizen from the citizenry to blow on less efficient government projects, because government projects are inherently less efficient than uh, private programs and then programs initiated by the private sector or investments made by the private sector. Because if there was money to be made, if it was, a, if it was efficient, somebody would come in and do it. You know, I'm not saying the free market is perfectly efficient. So maybe a hundred times out of a hundred, that doesn't necessarily happen, but the vast majority of the time, and I'm saying 99 plus percent of the time, A private individual or a private business is going to come in and fill the void where there's money to be made where a project would be efficient so when government tries to do these projects itself it's either going to spend more than the private sector or it's going to do it's going to spend money on a project that won't make enough money to cover the costs of it you know the government projects are less efficient so if there's a time where we need to (laughs) fund government in order to make these big investments and i'm putting air quotes around investments into the economy the time to do that where the harm to the private sector is the smallest is during an upturn not during a downturn there are much easier it's much easier to withstand these expenses this you know additional money being taken from you as a private citizen or a private business when things are going well than when things are going poorly Another kind of, this is a related uh, critique of Keynesianism, and it's not critique on the face of it, but Keynesianism is just far too convenient for those in power that it really makes me distrust the ideology just on the face of it, even before delving into what Keynesianism actually is. The fact that it's been accepted as mainstream truth, basically, over the last... 80 years so quickly and really across the board it just it it makes me distrust it and like I said I don't want to say that for this reason it doesn't mean that it's false but I think it makes it much more likely that it's false or that it's misleading because really what it does is it says to government you were always going to have a major role to play and let Let's say that Keynesians understood that what causes booms is central bank intervention, but then now they have this magical approach to the science of economics that says that now what government has to do is spend its way out of the malaise. Well, that means that you accept the existence of a central bank, you accept the government playing a huge role In the economy, and an even bigger role, the the worse things are going. Basically, that is great for the people in power. It's fantastic for the people in power, and it's no wonder that Keynesianism is pushed on people in public schools and government-funded schools and in colleges, which have so much have so many ties to the government, because I think it's a beneficial policy for them. It's a beneficial approach to economics. For them, think about Austrian economics. Who does that serve? The interests of certainly not the government, certainly not the central banks, and no arms of the central banks or arms of the government. And that's what you know. Public schools are an arm of the government. So there's a reason why that's not taught to people, but Keynesian economics is, and I I, I think it's not coincidence. Another one of my major critiques is it focuses too much on consumption and aggregate demand. So one of the most common phrases uttered by Keynesians, especially in an economic downturn, is that we need to stimulate aggregate demand. And demand being aggregate demand, obviously, being based on the words, the demand, the entire demand in the economy. If you're talking about the US, it's the the total demand in the US economy. And I think that the answer to prolonging the boom or to avoiding the bust is to keep this demand stimulated and how do they do this they lower interest rates to make borrowing uh, borrowing far more attractive they pump money into the economy uh, by by printing it (coughs) and they spend on government projects to put more money in people's pockets And they always say they want to put money in the people's pockets that are most likely to go out and spend it. You know, that's the ideal Keynesian solution because say that you put money in the pocket of somebody that spends 100% of their paycheck and doesn't save a dime, then you're getting the most value for your money if you think that stimulating aggregate demand somehow causes economic growth by giving money to those people. So you're focusing completely on the consumption and the demand side. But where does real economic growth come from it doesn't come from demand or consumption you know we all can consume we all have in a perfect world in a utopian world we would have infinite infinite demand we would want everything and we do want everything but scarcity forces us to pick and choose what we want you know do you think that the american consumer desires any more than the Chinese consumer the average Chinese consumer no you know once they are to our level of material well-being they will demand things just like we do they will consume just like we do you know demand isn't something that needs to be stimulated you can look at um, a, a child is a good example of that if you if you look at your child your child always wants something it's never enough you give them something, now there's something new on their mind that they want. They get that, now there's something new on their mind that they want. There's this new product that they've seen. There's a new snack or a new cereal or new thing coming out or a new movie coming out that they want to see. There's always something new. And I think that's, that's part of being a human. There's always a desire for more. And especially when you get beyond the point of just trying to survive, just trying to, say, grow enough food to survive like our ancestors did generations ago. Once you reach beyond that point, it now becomes you're ideally hoping to continue to improve your material well-being. And there's always a limit to that. No matter how rich you are, there's always a limit to that, whether it's imposed by your own income and your own wealth or whether it's imposed by the modern technology of the day, because we don't have the ability to do the next thing that you demand. But that's part of being a human. You don't need to stimulate demand. But where does real economic growth come from? It comes from improving our ability to produce goods and services. So, So it comes from improvements in the capital stock, which cause us to become more efficient. So this is, this is investments, like like I've said before, in factories and equipment and coming up with new technology, you know, research and development, all of these types of things. That's what makes us wealthier. And, you know, h- how does this make us wealthier? It's because we are always trying to, to transact with people on a, on a voluntary basis where each of us come out better. And that process... The process of capitalism, you know, capitalism at its very roots, that's what it is. It's it's about mutual trade and if we continue to make mutually beneficial transaction upon mutually beneficial transaction, we will all continue to be better off. And the way to keep making better and better transactions, you need to offer something that somebody else wants. Whether you become better and better at doing something or you're able to offer better and better products at a lower price. And you do that by saving a percentage of your income and by investing it, or, you know, a lot of us may save, we may, we may not necessarily sell any goods or services to somebody else, but our savings, say we put it in a financial institution, can then be borrowed by somebody that will, somebody that will make more efficient use of our savings than we would. You know, we will earn a, a rate of return on what we're putting in the bank, but the bank can lend it out at a higher a higher interest rate because somebody else thinks, you know, I can be more productive with this money than that rate of return. It's worth it for me to borrow it at 5% while this person put their money in the bank and they're earning a 2% rate of return. They think I can now improve my capital stock enough to be able to improve, you know, my sales volume or my level of service or whatever it may be. And obviously there are mistakes made and miscalculations made and, people fail every day in that type of system but it's a progressive slope upward but that what i just talked about there i'm not talking at all about the consumption side i'm not talking at all about the demand side it's all about the savings and investment side that is what really matters to economic growth if demand was all that mattered You know, you put two people on an island. I'm also going to link to uh, Peter Schiff has a great book, uh, How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes, which is very good. And it starts from this level of, I believe it starts with three people on a desert island. And it shows how those three then grow to something like a modern-day economy and how it starts with mutually beneficial transactions and how they start by just making enough to live. But then one guy decides to, I'm gonna eat less than I, than I need to be fully satiated. I'm going to save it. And then I'm gonna use this to fund building a certain tool that he can then, I, I think it was a fishing pole, I can now catch two fish in one day versus the one fish that I used to be able to catch. And then now I can trade this extra fish for something else to these other people on the island it's it's a great book i'm gonna i'm gonna post it but it goes back to what i'm saying the function so the economic activity that caused growth there is clearly the saving side and he's investing as well you know by saving half of his fish each day so that he could not work on just surviving for a week then he could build the tool that he could use to then be more productive later and have enough to be able to trade, and now they start specializing in their, own act, in their own activities. Consumption and demand doesn't play any role in that growth. And you can extrapolate that to an entire economy. Consumption is the least productive economic activity. It's the economic activity that matters the least. So I think that's another just critique I have is this constant harping about demand and consumption. And then finally, the last critique that I had was about the Keynesians hiding behind their models. And when they talk about models, and they say, oh, this is, what our, this is what our models prove, it's with the assumption that the models are true. But I mean, models are, on the face of it, they're a representation of reality, or they're an attempted representation of reality. you could have a model that's completely false and something could work out perfectly in your model but if the model has flaws then what you have you know you whatever you're drawing as a conclusion from your use of that model is also going to be flawed and I think that's what happens with Keynesians and they get caught up with they say we have all this mathematical rigor in our approach to economics and they look at a group like the Austrians, and the Austrians do not rely on equations. They rely on a, on basically drawing a lot of this from logic and looking at history rather than focusing on math. Um, and they say that, well, this isn't a real science because it doesn't have math behind it. But they're ignoring the fact that, A, it's very difficult to explain Keynesian approaches to the layperson. And like I said before, that does not necessarily mean that it's false but i think it makes it more likely that it is false because there are certain parts of science there, you know there are certain certain branches of science that it's very difficult to explain to any layperson and it may never make sense to the layperson but it's still true uh, so i'm not saying that that, nest, that this 100% means that it's false but because it can't be explained to most people because they need to hide behind their mathematical models, I think that this makes it far more likely that Keynesianism is misleading. And I I really hate their critiques of other branches of economics that because they're not using equations means that their approach to economics is false. I think if anything, I won't say that's a strength necessarily, but I can't say that that's all... that that's necessarily an inherent weakness either. You know, I think you can certainly construe that as a strength because I think Austrian economics if you really sit down and talk to somebody about it, it makes a ton of sense and if you look at what's happened over history, it makes a ton of sense as well. Um, and I think that's a strength of Austrian economics and why so many people are drawn to it and so many people feel robbed that for their entire lives up until that point they were force-fed the Keynesian approach to economics. I know I I certainly fit into that camp, and I'm sure many people out there that discovered Austrian economics later in life. You know, I was lucky and discovered it pretty much at around 18 to 20 years old. Uh, so you know, I've I've been learning more and more about it over the last five six years, but uh, I still have a ton to learn, of course. But I never learned any of that earlier on in my youth in every economics course that I took was taught from a keynesian perspective um, without even really pointing to what the different approaches to economics were so i know that i felt robbed for that reason but i think that a lot of those in the economics profession i don't know if it's for uh, i don't know if it's because they're being protectionary of their discipline but they try to make economics into being this discipline that nobody can really understand that only they, the anointed economic, or economists, can understand. That's how they make it out to be. But I don't think it's, it's that complex. You know, on certain levels, yes, it's certainly, it certainly it becomes complex. But I think to understand economics at a relatively deep level, it doesn't take as much time as, as professional economists would have you believe to be able to start thinking in economic terms and to be able to make conclusions about what will happen due to a certain policy. I don't think it's as complex as these Keynesian economists want you to believe. So I think just the reliance on models and by blasting other branches of of economics because they don't use models to the same extent that Keynesians do, don't use math to the same extent that Keynesians do, I think that that is another fatal flaw and, and major critique that I have of it and I know I'm making this episode pretty long but I did promise some critique of Paul Krugman which there's so much out there to, to criticize him on I think my biggest criticism of him now is he's become such a partisan hack for the Democratic Party and really for the mainstream of the Democratic Party he's completely behind Hillary Clinton he blasted Bernie Sanders throughout the the primary on that side, and like I said, like like I've said many times on this show, I don't have any bias in favor of Bernie Sanders. I'm I've been very critical of him and his policies, but Krugman fell right in line behind Hillary. He knew that she was by far the most likely to win, not just the Democratic nomination but the presidency. He knew that he's fallen right in line behind her, and he's been writing about this nonstop. So I just looked at his 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 columns and editorial posts from the last two weeks or less than two weeks I have some quotes from his October 21st editorial why Hillary wins and then from his October 17th editorial that's his column their dark fantasies and I actually listened to the Contra Krugman episode for this week I'll I'll link to that exact episode uh, where they talk about this column their dark fantasies Column, but I just picked out a couple quotes to go to to show how big of a partisan hack that Paul Krugman is, and you can't trust anything that this guy says. Everything that he writes is distorted. It's it, it comes from a partisan viewpoint. I know I know that we're all biased, but where he is biased is in favor of the Democratic Party, this center left ideal that he has that he thinks Hillary Clinton represents. That's where he's coming from, and he'll distort anything he needs to in order to prove or in order to, to align with his perception of reality. So listen to this quote from the, the, the Why Hillary Wins editorial. You have to go back to Al Gore in 2000 to find a politician who faces much jeering from the news media over everything from claims of dishonesty, in parentheses, which usually turn out to be based on nothing, to matters of personal style. So th- <sighs> to say that Hillary Clinton is facing more scrutiny from this news media than George Bush ever faced or than Donald Trump is facing right now. And I mean that's going from Al Gore to now because he's saying nobody since Al Gore has faced this much uh, this much criticism from the news media. I was pretty young during the Al Gore election but I do not remember the media ever turning on Al Gore my perception was Al Gore was the media favorite. Um, my parents are both Democrats, and I, I considered myself a Democrat early on when I was kind of forming my, my political viewpoints. But at that point, I mean, you could even tell that Al Gore was favored by the media. I think that was a big reason why I wanted him to win um, and that I wanted John Kerry to win. And I hate George Bush, and I, prob- I probably hate him more than either of, of those two. But it's clear that the Democrats were favored over the Republicans at at that point in time. And in this race, it's been completely clear that Hillary Clinton has been the media darling. And that they've avoided discussing the the very difficult issues that she poses due to her her history. And they've been all over Trump. And once again, I hate both of those candidates. But it's clear that Clinton is being favored over Trump that Clinton is who the majority of the mainstream media wants to win. Not saying there aren't voices out there in favor of Trump in the mainstream media, but the Clinton supporters outweigh the Trump supporters by a pretty large factor. Um, He also said in this column that Trump won Republican, won the Republican nomination by quote, channeling the racial antagonism that has been the driving force for Republican electoral success for decades, which you know, I'm very critical of the Republican Party, but I, I don't think that that's why they have been doing well in recent times. I think it's been much more due to the Democrats and Republicans have become very alike, and they have a few issues that they take opposite sides on. And I think it's people becoming single-issue voters and voting the Republicans for this reason or the Democrats for this reason because they believe a certain way on one or two or three Divisive issues that don't really matter. I, I, I think that's a far better explanation for what's been going on than racial antagonism being at the core of Republican success. Uh, he also claims in this that Republicans believe, quote, tax cuts have magical powers, which I think is very misleading for him to basically insinuate that tax cuts have no impact because they certainly do. I mean, freeing up more money in the private economy has a positive impact but once again shows this partisan divide that he has in his mind uh, <clears throat> and i believe in most of these cases where he's criticizing republicans it, a lot of it's republican rhetoric that they never actually follow through with and their policies are pretty indistinguishable from democratic policies another final quote from this was furthermore there's one thing Mrs. Clinton brought to this campaign that no establishment Republican could have matched. She truly cares about her signature issues and believes in the solutions she's pushing. End quote. I don't know how he possibly makes this this distinction, how he possibly can tell this, but Hillary Clinton is just as far removed from reality as Donald Trump is. Just as far removed from the average American as Donald Trump is if not more removed, because she's been working in positions of politics rather than in positions where you actually need to be able to provide a service that people want to pay for, like Trump has been able to. I guess if, if you have to say which one understands more about the average person, it's maybe Trump by a hair. But they're both extremely far removed. Clinton panders. Trump panders as well. Neither of them care about the average person. Neither of them give one one iota of concern for the average american they're they're trying to get into power in order to grow their brand name because they desire the power that's why they're doing this for him to insinuate that clinton for whatever reason cares more about her ideals than any other politician running for high office is just ridiculous absolutely ridiculous and this column, more so than any of his that I've read recently, just confirms that you're looking at him as a as, as a partisan hack, and I think people on the far left are realizing that too. That he falls right in line with the establishment of the of the Democratic Party, and everybody on the right already knows it. Libertarians all already know it. I'm not going to get too deep into this October seventeenth editorial because I do implore you to listen to that Contra Krugman podcast about this exact episode and i'm going to try not to repeat any lines that that they've used but here are a couple quotes that i pulled out of this when i was reading it that i thought were pretty chilling or interesting or you know whatever adjective you want to use quote to be sure progressives still see a lot wrong with the state of our society and seek change but they also celebrate the progress we've made and for the most part the change they seek is incremental it involves building on existing institutions not burning everything down and starting over. Well, of course, progressives now are the more pro-American voices because they have won. You know, They have won battle after battle after battle in this country, and we've continued to get closer to their agenda. That's what's happening. We're continuing to centralize more and more power in the federal government. <clears throat> We're implementing more of the social safety net policies that they want. We now have Obamacare that... Because it's failing, I think we're getting steps closer to universal healthcare, single payer healthcare, whatever you want to call it here, European style healthcare in the United States. Everything has been trending in their direction for a long time. So wouldn't you expect them to be happier with the state of America than everybody else? I mean, I certainly would. It would be ridiculous if they didn't, because they have just, they have won so many battles and now... The arguments are fought more on their turf than on anybody else's turf. Because now the you know, now the battle isn't between should we have social security or should we not have social security, just to take one example of an issue. That's not the battle anymore. The issue is now should social security cost us X amount of dollars or X minus two percent amount of dollars. That's now the argument. It's no longer about should we have these progressive policies in the united states it's to what level should we have them so of course they're going to be happier with the state of america another quote i pulled uh there are good reasons for those good feelings recovery from the financial crisis was slower than it should have been but unemployment is low income surged last year and thanks to obamacare more americans have health insurance than ever before and <laughs> this shows his distortion of statistics and But more importantly, it shows he's been so pro-Obamacare, and all that he ever looks at from Obamacare is are more people insured. As if there's no cost to have more people insured. And as if the cost doesn't matter. Of course, if you throw a trillion dollars at an issue, I'm not saying Obamacare costs a trillion dollars, but if you throw a ton of money at an issue, yes, you're going to be able to get more people insured. But you've got to look at what are the downsides to what else that money could have been spent on or, you know, leaving that money in the private sector, what it could have done in the private sector. That's the real calculation to be made, but he uses these distortions time and time again. It's really that last line that I wanted to talk about, but thanks to Obamacare, more Americans have health insurance than ever before. Which is true. You know, that sent or that, that phrase is true. At least more Americans have health insurance than ever before, and that it's because of Obamacare that now more and more Americans are insured compared to previously. But it's been extremely costly. Health premiums or health health insurance premiums have gone through the roof. A lot of state exchanges look like they might collapse, and now they're pushing more and more toward a an imposed solution from from above by government, and that's the playbook a lot of people talked about when this started when Obamacare was implemented, they pointed out these exact weaknesses that have caused this system to start to collapse. And they said that it was produced this way intentionally. They were able to pass this, but because this would fail so miserably, they would now be able to impose a single-payer healthcare system, universal healthcare system, Medicare for All type of system that they've wanted all along. (coughs) But Krugman just uses these kind of intellectual sleight of hands like this over and over again throughout his columns. And you really cannot trust anything that he says anymore. And he used to be a great economist on international trade and on the benefits of free trade, but he's gone away from what made him a big shot in the economics community. He's now become a political hack. And everything that he says is about Everything I talked about before with Keynesian economics, he fits those critiques to a T. So these two, these critiques are interwoven, but I wanted to also just discuss my big problems with Paul Krugman for a bit as well. Um, I apologize for the long episode. Thank you for listening if you made it all the way through it. Hoping to have another one out tomorrow or early next week. There's a lot going on in the news. So I'm hoping to have kind of a current news issue I don't think I want to do one about the last debate I don't think I have much more to say than what I've said in my first two debate episodes so I don't think I'm going to do that maybe I'll throw some discussion of it into my next podcast but I don't think it's worth my time to to do that but thank you for listening and thanks for making it making it through to 20 episodes with me